Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. Hello, and thank you for giving us a listen this week. This is episode number 23 of The Next Track, brought to you by Drobo, a family of simple-to-use storage arrays designed to keep your data safe forever. For more information, you can visit drobo.com. And be sure to keep listening because we'll have details on how you can save $100 on your next purchase of a Drobo product. Today, we are pleased to welcome music journalist, critic, and author David Brown. Hello, David. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. If you're a regular listener to this show, you know that I'm a deadhead, a fan of the Grateful Dead. I've probably mentioned it in half of our 22 episodes so far. Oh, more than half. Or more. Yes. And I wanted to get David on the show this week because I've read almost every book about the history of the Grateful Dead. And David's book, So Many Roads, The Life and Times of the Grateful Dead, is probably the most interesting book I've read about the band. You get two types of books about the dead. You get the chronological biography that starts with, you know, where Jerry was born and when they met Bob and all that, and it goes in order. But your book is different. You decided, instead of telling the story in order, you decided to pick a series of dates. There are exactly 15 chapters, and each one is a date. Why did you choose that approach? When I decided to do this book, which was back in 2011, uh, I was... You know, I was both excited and sort of uh, overwhelmed by it. Uh, I felt that there was room for another biography of the dead. There really hadn't been one at that point since Dennis O'Galley's book. And so I thought, you know, another 10 or so years had passed. There was, a lot, there was a lot to cover in those 10 years, life after Jerry. But then the challenge was, what can I bring that's new to the, to the story? And uh, as with my previous books, I like to try to approach my my books almost as if they're novels, uh, but but real real life novels where you uh, where I do lots of research and reporting and try to tell a story uh, and make it as almost cinematic uh, and you are there as possible, and uh, it's an approach I've I've taken with my uh, my book on Sonic Youth or about the year 1970 and so forth, and I thought this I thought the dead was would be particularly uh, ideal way, uh, ideal topic to tell that story. Because if there's any story that's filled with colorful characters uh, and, and, and scenes and settings, it's the story of the dead. And so I thought that picking an approach where you're just um, focusing on particular pivotal days would not only maybe probably bring the story to life a little bit, and it would also uh, give you a real in-depth window into certain uh, certain key moments in their story. I picked days that I thought embodied uh, a certain period, whether it was good or bad, but that that would give you a window, a real kind of you are there window into what was happening at the band during certain periods, rather than just overwhelm people with, with the chronologies and dates, uh, as you mentioned. Yeah, and, and when, when we're talking about the specific dates that are the chapter heads, you're not only talking about what happened on that day. You're using that day as a sort of starting point to talk about some context before and some context after. As a deadhead, we refer to dead concerts by their dates. You know, whoa, 827-72 was such a great show. And oh, man, that 213 and 214-70 at the Fillmore. Would that be why you chose? Is that part of why you chose this approach? Uh, 
not not really, uh, but it's it's a great connection. I hadn't really even thought about that. Uh, it's funny because I have had so many conversations with with deadheads where they mention dates like that. Uh, I have to give a credit and wait to my wife, who is a, a magazine editor and now a, a digital editor. Um, when I told her I was doing this book back in 2011, and I said, well, ideally, I'd love to publish it in 2015, which will be their 50th anniversary. So she said, why don't you do 50 Days of the Dead, 50 Years, 50 Days? Uh, and I thought, well, that's an interesting idea. But, of course, I was then completely overwhelmed with the idea of picking 50, doing 50 chapters of a book. But it, it, it did put that seed in my head. And as I started doing the research uh, – and just interviewing whoever I could and getting documents, uh, I slowly kind of came back to that idea. And I thought, you know what, maybe not 50, but I thought, you know, that's an interesting uh, germ of an idea. And so it was, it was kind of more based a little bit on that and a little bit of, uh, you know, between my wife's inspiration and my own interest in sort of also micro histories. I, I love uh, books and, and recently movies that just focused on one particular slice of time. There was a great uh, a book on, on Bobby Kennedy a few years ago called The Last Campaign. It was just completely about his 1968 presidential run, ending in his assassination, of course. And it was almost like a day-by-day uh, uh, chronicle of that little moment at the time. And um, my book, Fire and Rain, which was all about 1970, was a similar thing. So I've also, I've loved that kind of... Um, Micro history approach, and I think that's sort of a way. Uh, another way I saw this dead book. It's a series of micro histories uh, that, again, hopefully give people a real window into what was happening with them uh, at particular moments of time. So, why did you pick two sixteen seventy for the first chapter? I wanted to. Um, well, you know, it's interesting. As you said earlier, most dead books uh, do start with. Uh, Here's Jerry Hughes. Jerry, Jerry's father was born here. Yeah. There. They came to America and so forth. And that's a totally valid approach. I have no That's no a problem. standard biography. Standard biography. Um, I thought it would be interesting to start with a day that would set up the running theme of the book in some way, which is that I think throughout the story of the dead, they were fighting both sort of lightness, light and darkness throughout the whole, their whole story. There was, there, was, there was always sort of positive stuff and then always dark clouds looming uh, almost uh, throughout their story. And I thought that the recording of Working Man's Dead in that particular er period in early 1970 was, was a good microcosm of that because I think it... it they were on one hand on such a role creatively. They, um, they had this great batch of songs they were about to record. Um, two albums worth. Two, two albums worth. Yeah. They were going to record another one a couple of months later. There was, it was an amazing creative role. The band seemed on, uh, in a good frame of mind. Uh, you know, Mickey was uh, starting to have, there were some issues starting there, but overall, uh, there was, you know, the, the, the dead is a, is a rough and tumble crew. And yet at that moment in time, they seem like fairly unfairly stable ground. Jerry was living with mountain girl and things were good there. Uh, they were starting to record this record and, and, and record it really quickly and efficiently and, and beautifully. Uh, and yet there was also around them 
there were there were hints of of of, of trouble. There was the Lenny Hart situation was starting to come up. Just for people who aren't familiar with it, Lenny Hart, Mickey's father, um, was briefly the dead's manager, and he absconded with what was it, fifty thousand dollars or something? Uh, about one hundred and fifty thousand. Oh, okay, yeah. Which in nineteen seventy was yeah, it's a lot of money now. And, so. and the band members didn't blame Mickey, but Mickey felt really bad about it, and that's why he left and and only finally came back on that last show in October twentieth, nineteen seventy four, the last show before the hiatus. Right, and Working Man's Dead was really the last full album he worked on with them for quite a while. He's barely on American Beauty, which they recorded a few months later. Uh, so that whole thing was happening with, with Mickey's father, uh, with the band discovering that Mickey's father was absconding things. Harder drugs were starting to creep in, more cocaine and more heroin were starting to make their way into the scene. It was the acid days were ending. The acid days were ending. Uh, the, the band had moved up by that point for the most part, to Marin County, which was, again, a positive kind of move for them. So I thought, I thought by, by painting that picture of that moment when they're starting to record Dire Wolf in particular um, was a nice um, way to start the book and set it up for the reader, like, okay, we're going to be looking at particular moments in time and there's uh, of a story that involves plenty of colorful characters and wonderful music, but there's always there's always a bit of a cloud, a dark cloud lingering. And I thought that was a way to kind of set it up. And then from there, we go back into more of a chronological story. Right. Th then you go back to 62 and 63 and 65 and, and et cetera. Um, as I said earlier, um, February 1970, the band was just smoking live. The 213 and 214 concerts are just among those top 10 concerts that every deadhead loves. Um, that they were at the they were at the peak of their creativity live, and yet they were about to do this head fake pivot and go into this acoustic album that no one really expected. They they were, and you know it's interesting. Uh, one of the interesting reasons that that I discovered in talking to people like Sam Cutler, their their uh, road manager at the time, was that it was some degree financially driven. Uh, they were suddenly in the they were already in the hole. Uh, thanks to the Oxymoxoa sessions, which were which were lengthy and costly, and they went into debt with their label. Suddenly, they're out one hundred and fifty thousand dollars. And whether it was Sam himself or in conjunction with one of their managers at the time, but you know, somebody kind of said, "Well, you know, why don't you guys just record a record quickly? Don't spend months. Uh, you've got these songs ready to go. They're." fairly commercial for you guys. They, they were getting back into a simpler approach at that time. And, and plus they had learned how to do these harmonies from Crosby, Stills, and Nash. Exactly. Those guys were hanging around. Uh, yeah, Crosby and uh, Crosby was living up in Marin. Uh, in fact, the, uh, the Deja Vu album cover had just been shot a couple of months before, yeah. right, right in someone's backyard up yeah. there. Uh, so there was there, there was uh there was an artistic reason for doing that but also a financial reason like you know if you if you record two albums pretty quickly you can get your advance from Warner Brothers and you might even sell a few more records if the music isn't as uh complicated as right. it had been on the last couple so um yeah i think that's a rare example perhaps where uh of any with any band where where the the business intrudes and there's actually a good result as opposed to um, you know, a fiscally driven decision that, that is ultimately misguided. I think in this case, everything kind of came together in a good way.
you know, and obviously, I mean, we're still listening to those two albums 45, 46 years later. They're, they're probably the core of the band's studio repertoire. I mean, Real Deadheads, I hate to say it, make it sound like that, but Real Deadheads prefer the live music. But I have to say that Ripple on American Beauty is my absolute favorite Grateful Dead song of all time. You know, if I could speak for the casual or indifferent Grateful Dead listener, <laughs> uh, I think the stuff you're more likely to be familiar with or even here on the radio are songs from those two albums, Working Man's Dead and American Beauty. They sort of define the Grateful Dead sound for a lot of people. Yeah. Right. And, and you guys bring up a good point. Um, and this is some maybe where I maybe I and we diverge a bit from some deadheads. I actually love most of their studio albums. The yeah. standard line, and you even hear it now from I heard it throughout my uh, research and in interviewing people in the band, people who worked with the band. The standard line is, they never got it right in the studio. It's become a trope to say the Grateful Dead sucked in the studio. Exactly. Uh, and that they couldn't get it right because they weren't playing to an audience. I, I understand yeah. that, but but I I, I I still David Gans, my fellow uh, dead author and, and certainly a, a, an expert, uh, agrees with me agrees with us on this as yeah. well. And talking to him during the book, I was I was glad to hear him say that too. Like we we don't we don't understand why uh, uh, why the everyone is always putting those records down, uh, other than the fact that maybe perhaps a lot of them didn't sell well, and that's the kind of yeah. meaning on that. Let's uh, pause for just a bit here, and we'll continue our conversation with music journalist and author David Brown in just a minute. Right now, I want to tell you about Drobo Storage Arrays, the simple, safe, and smart way to protect your data, and specifically about the Drobo 5N. You can connect the Drobo 5N right to your Mac or PC via USB-C or Thunderbolt to use as network storage and for sharing and backing up your network. And here's a cool thing. The Drobo 5N uses Drobo apps to customize the way you use your Drobo, like with cloud services for backup or remote access or syncing multiple locations. You can stream your digital media locally or on mobile. Use it with a BitTorrent client to retrieve far-flung files from the internet. And if you're a web or app developer, the Drobo 5N supports programming with Perl, C, Go, Ruby, WordPress, you name it. And because data on the Drobo 5N is encrypted end-to-end, your privacy is always assured. Now that I've got you thinking about all the ways you could be using a Drobo, I want you to check one out for yourself at Drobo.com. And when you're ready to buy, listeners of the next track can save $100 on a Drobo 5N, Drobo 5D, or Drobo 5DT by using the code TRACK100 at Drobostore.com. Save $100 with the code TRACK100 at Drobostore.com. Drobo, simple-to-use storage arrays designed to keep your data safe forever. So w would you call yourself a deadhead or are you just a fan and you approach this as a journalist? Um, boy, that's a good question. It depends, I guess, how you define deadhead. Uh, I discovered them back in 1973 and, you know, saw them a bunch of times starting in the incident until the 80s when I was a little older because I was 13 in 1973. But um, I, I would say I'm I'm a. I, I'm not a deadhead. I'm, I wouldn't say I'm a, I'm a, I'm a rabid deadhead. I didn't follow them around and so forth and so forth. But uh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a, a deadhead journalist, I guess. Okay. <laughs> maybe it's a little bit of both. Because, so I, I, I saw them maybe eight times. Um, first time I saw them was at the Palladium in April 77. And then I saw them, you know, six, seven other times. And I never followed them around. I never saw them outside of either New York City or Nassau Coliseum. 
But since the band has started releasing official releases of old recordings of live performances, I buy pretty much everything. Not a fan of the 90s, but that's a topic for another show, I think, you know, which decade is best. So, yeah, I would say that I'm a deadhead in the sense that, you know, I'm, I listen to them very, very often. I got the T-shirt. I'm wearing a dead T-shirt here. Um, I've got a couple dozen dead T-shirts. He always um, wears a dead T-shirt. No, no, no. I don't no. think I've I, ever seen you not wear one. <laughs> I, I do have a lot. So you said you first saw them in 73. Uh, I've heard them in 73. Ah, okay. So when did you see them live the first time? Uh, I saw them in 87. Really? Not until 87? Well after things had started going down that hill, that great hill that leads to the great rock history of the sky kind of thing. Kind of, yeah, in a way. I, and I think it's because, um, well, I guess I was a poor college student up until then. I didn't have the, didn't have the money. Uh, but, you know, the repu- you know, I always wanted to see them in the early 80s. And everything I was hearing was not positive. You know, I mean, that was Jerry was heading downhill. People say, oh, don't go see them now. I'm like, really? Yeah, they're, they're not good. They're not good now. Jerry's having problems. Don't go see them. I had a, a guy named Phil in my college, uh, in my dorm at NYU, who was always telling me, yeah, no, wait a while. <laughs> well, well, I got to I got to see them the first time right at the right at their peak in 1977. And I think most deadheads agree that 77 was really the best year all around for live shows. And I did see them several times after that in 1980, 81. And it's true that after 81 or 82, I didn't see them anymore. Now, I left the States in 84, so I didn't have a chance to see Jerry, you know, post-diabetic coma and all that, which happened in 86. But it's true that in the early 80s, the dead were, you know, this was MTV came out and the dead were all of a sudden like these old guys, you know, compared with the new wave and stuff on MTV. One of the uh, chapters in the book is about 1984. Uh, and and I, I was able to uh, piece together uh, the, uh, one of those um, kind of chaotic recording sessions for the album that never was. Yeah. Uh, because I thought that was, I, I wanted to, I wanted to tackle that period and which I felt had not really been tackled in depth in a lot of the other dead books. Um, a lot of, you know, them sort of, um, kind of uh, skip through the 80s pretty quickly. But I was like, no, no, let's, let's pause here. And um, through um, Dennis McNally, who I came to know, uh, he, he was at one of those sessions in 84. So he was, he was nice enough to give me his notes. I was able to talk to Phil Lesh a bit about it and, and the recording engineer who worked with him and some other people, Mickey Hart as well, about that session, about those couple of days there in 84, where they tried... Um, unsuccessfully to make that the record and uh, you know, between Jerry's uh, poor health and uh, various other uh, indulgences around the band and uh, you know, everything was ready to go and they couldn't do it. And I thought that would be really interesting to recreate that moment and, and, and uh, paint a picture of, of uh, the dysfunction. Yeah, the, the difficulties they were having. Most brand, most bands faced with something like that, they would have probably broken up. The, 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 the individual musicians would have gone off to solo projects. And, and of course, some of them did start their solo projects around that time, but they still stuck together in spite of all of that. And, and I think that's interesting that the legacy of the dead was that this band did have this glue that with the exception of, you know, the curse of the keyboard player, the band members stuck together for 30 years. They did. And, uh, it's a, it is quite fascinating that they did that. I mean, I think it was partly, um, I think there was probably a financial motivation. I mean, after, one of the things that was so fascinating to me to discover was that, 
even though they didn't release a studio album between 1980 and 1987. Yeah. Um, and that, those were not great years for them in many ways. But every year, they got bigger in terms of their live draw. And to the point where in 85 and 86, they had no choice but to move into stadiums. Yeah. Because they could no longer play these uh, theaters or outdoor sheds and and. Yeah. And arenas like Madison and arenas and yeah, yeah. And, and just camp out there for three or four days. Um, there's, a, there's another story in my book about about a band meeting that happened then. I think it was it was in uh, late '85 or something uh, at Front Street, their studio, where they finally they were rehearsing. Afterwards, they all congregated in the in the little office in the front, and somebody was like, you know, we got to start planning this this uh, summer '86 tour and. You know, we really need to think about stadiums because maybe that's the way to go from now on. You've got too many people uh, congregating around these shows without tickets, and, and maybe it's just worth to, you know, instead of, yeah, three nights at the garden or whatever, or at some outdoor uh, venue somewhere, let's just do one or two shows at a 50,000 seat stadium. Boom. There you go. And, you know, Jerry was very reluctant, uh, in that meeting about it. He hated the way, um, the music sounded in stadium. I yeah. agree. I've yeah. seen, I can't stand seeing shows in stadiums. Uh, but they, they, they sort of went along with it. I mean, it was, it was a bigger paycheck. So that certainly was some one factor. Well, it was a bigger t paycheck, but just like in 1974, they had all of these people around them, their family, the people that were working for them, and they had to maintain them. And they got to the point where the only way they could do this was to keep getting bigger. Right. And they took that break, and then they slowly kind of rebuilt. And next thing you know, they rebuilt to the point where, yeah, by the, by the mid-'80s, they can play stadiums. And that was so interesting to me. That even though they, had, they, they stopped releasing new music, they were completely out of favor in the media. Yeah. Uh, to the point when, when I was approached by Rolling Stone in 1987 to review In the Dark, um, I was just a kid sort of starting out, but they came to me because they couldn't find anyone else <laughs> who, who liked them. Yeah. That's not the case with the magazine now. There are lots of people on um, staff or, or who write to them who appreciate the dead. But back in 1987, they were, they were, they were so disliked. Yeah. I mean, the editor at the time said to me, well, I'm just trying to find someone who doesn't wish they were, that they didn't exist. <laughs> You know, and I was like, no, I, I appreciate, I, I'm glad they exist. I'll review that record. But, um, but they were, the, the point was, yeah, they, they kept getting bigger throughout that period. So even though there was all this dysfunction in the band and, and moments where you think it would all kind of fall apart, um, it, it was, it was a good living for them. And they certainly still had enough, you know, uh, there's enough creative spark there to keep it going and what else were they going to do i mean yeah, that was exactly you know, they kind of they liked you know one of their road managers was like well, what are they going to do they didn't want to just go home and hang out with their quote-unquote old ladies all the time and yeah. you know just being on the road is fun you yeah. know they were catered to you know? didn't they weren't they responsible for some innovations in stadium performances i mean didn't they invent or maybe i should say advance some technological innovations for stadium performance? They did uh, as time went on. Yes, they, the, thing, the thing about the dead is um, they have, I think, an image, especially among people who don't like them, uh, as these anachronistic hippies, and they just you know, get on stage and take drugs and noodle around. And they did do that. Yeah, <laughs> a lot. But, a lot. But uh, the dead were always 
um, forward thinking in terms of, uh, especially in terms of technology. So, you know, back in the, in the, in, in the late 60s and into the early 70s, with the help of Owsley, they, helped, they started developing one of the best sound systems. I'll just put it that way. One of the best sound systems a band had had, had up to that point. Yeah, that was called The Wall of Sound. I'll put a link in the show notes to an article on my website where I, a, a reader of my website sent me a Grateful Dead newsletter with a drawing, like a schematic of The Wall of Sound from 74. Um, so I've got that on my site. And it was massive. And, and yeah, Owsley built that. Um, and wasn't Owsley behind Alembic Sound, the company that um, made all these wonderful sound systems? Absolutely. He was part of that. And so they, they were always kind of, uh, they, they always wanted the music to sound as good as possible on stage for themselves and for their fans. And that continued into the 80s when they went into stadiums. Uh, they didn't quite, they didn't have the wall of sound anymore, but they really um, honed their sound system. And they also started using things like MIDI technology yeah. so that you know, Jerry could have his guitar sound like a trumpet yeah. or a keyboard or something. And they were pioneers of that. And that was also happening right around that time in the late eighties. Mm-hmm. So they were always really interested in moving. They, they were, they were not just a bunch of lazy hippies in that way. They really, um, whether it was that or setting up their own ticket office, which kind of failed, but, but they, they had the experience. But they had the experience, and they, they had these interesting ideas of, of thinking outside of the box, yeah. both in terms of business and technology, that uh, I think they're only starting to get credit for that now. The whole concept, and, and a lot of people have talked about it, the fact that they more or less allowed people to record their shows meant that more people could hear the music and hear the excitement of a live performance and then buy tickets. Since the albums didn't sell a lot and they did make a lot of money from touring, I don't remember how many years, but they were the biggest grossing touring act in the States for a number of years, weren't they? They were. They were, And yeah, again, a lot of those years were years they didn't even have a new record to promote. In fact, isn't, isn't that sort of the time when it changed, that concerts changed from promoting records to actually trying to make money? Yeah, also. right. And, you know, just to go back, this also ties into the previous question about technology. Um, the whole idea of an unplugged set even the, they started doing that back in 69 and 70. Nope. You know, that was another little minor innovation. Now it's like normal. You have, you had MTV unplugged for years and all that, but for a band to, for an electric band to say, okay, we're going to, we're just going to grab these acoustic guitars in the middle of the show or the beginning of the show and just do a whole set of like folkish music. Like no one was doing that in the late sixties and it was a very cool thing. And, and so it was very, it was very, it was even cooler when they revived that. Uh, in, in 1980, uh, I'm not sure if the whole band was that psyched about it, according to someone I talked to who was backstage at the Warfield. And Garcia, you know, was always a, an acoustic fan and yeah. uh, a bluegrass fan. And he was really into it. I think he had to kind of talk the rest of the guys <laughs> into into doing it. It was a little suddenly outside out of their zone. So looking back on all this, what's your favorite dead era? Deadheads generally talk about their favorite year. If you're not like a rabid deadhead, maybe you don't have a favorite year, but what's your favorite era? My favorite era would have to be the 70 to 74-ish, uh, the peak of, it, of the Keith and Donnie years. Um, th- those, that's generally the when, when I go back and listen to, 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 to stuff, it's usually from that era. Um, I, I, I love Keith's uh, piano playing. I think Donna's voice, when, when it was in tune with the rest of the band added something. I think, I think the material, you know, from like, as you mentioned, from the working man's and American beauty up through wake of the flood into, 
into Mars Hotel. I mean, you know, stuff like Unbroken Chain is amazing. And um, so uh, I think it was something about that that lineup. Um, and by 77, they were still good. They were a little, a little slicker and tighter, which was good, but there was still kind of a, a loose caboose aspect yeah. to them in the early seventies. So I, I, I tend to, um, I, I tend to gravitate toward that period. And also that's when I first discovered them. So yeah. That's always, yeah. there's always a, a connection. Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, spoke with deadheads who discovered them in the mid to late eighties for the first time. And, uh, you know, that's their favorite, you know, yeah. favorite era. I, I agree the 70 to 74, because on the one hand, you've got Pigpen at the early part of that. And for me, Pigpen is just, Pigpen is this particular era of the Grateful Dead. When people ask me to pick an album or a set of Grateful Dead music to discover, I recommend the soundtrack to the Grateful Dead movie. So it's five CDs of, of stuff picked from, from that run. It's, I, I think in spite of the fact that the vocals don't sound great because they had those noise-canceling microphones that made the, the voices a bit fuzzy, I think their playing was just excellent. Um, and the, the movie itself, I remember seeing the movie when it launched uh, June or July 77 um, in New York, and it was great a couple at the Ziegfeld, yep. Um, it's great that a couple years ago they released an extended version with another DVD of just songs, so not cut up with, with um, interviews and all that. And there's some just, there's some killer stuff on that. Yeah, uh, that's, that's a fascinating movie, especially with all the, the animation always really interesting to me and uh another thing i learned in doing the book and it w was talking to gary gutierrez who, who put together all that animation and added another piece of the puzzle that i didn't expect in that there's all this kind of random imagery in that intro the cards and and all this stuff and you know he gary told me he had you know kind of an exclusive uh, 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 express order from Jerry orders, probably too strong a word, the suggestion to, to, to do make it as random as possible because yeah. Jerry's whole approach was just live in the moment. You never know what's around the bends. Uh, I think that sort of fatalism imbued his entire life. That's why I picked uh, a, a chapter, uh, a, a setting in 1962 and the, the night of the Cuban missile crisis. Yep. When, when he thought the world was just going to end, it didn't, but, and it, and it combines with the fact that he, he, he lost his father in a drowning accident when he was really young and one of his best friends died practically right in front of him when he was a teenager in a, in a car accident. It, 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 he it, had a strong it, sense of his mortality. A real sense of his mortality and it, and it could all end at any moment. Yep. And, and uh, in a strange way, that opening seg uh, segment, uh, uh, the animation segments in, uh, in the Grateful Dead movie kind of capture that in a way. And, and I think that ran throughout his whole life. David Brown, thanks for joining us. I'll remind listeners that the book is called So Many Roads, The Life and Times of the Grateful Dead. And even if you're not a deadhead, even if you're not a dead fan, you'll learn an awful lot about music and about the America around the music of the 60s, 70s, 80s, and all that. So, David, thanks for joining us. Hey, sir. Great being here. It's time for us to pick our next tracks, the music that we'll be listening to in the immediate future. Thanks to this episode's sponsor, Drobo, a family of simple-to-use storage arrays designed to keep your data safe 
forever. And be sure to use the code TRACK100 to save $100 on your next purchase of a Drobo 5N, a Drobo 5D, or a Drobo 5DT at drobostore.com. TRACK100 at drobostore.com. Kirk, I've got a funny feeling about your next track. Well, given the topic of the show, my next track has to be something by the Grateful Dead. Mm -hmm. And... I mentioned in the show that the album I recommend to people who want to discover the dead is called the Grateful Dead Movie Soundtrack. This is a selection of the songs from the five concerts that the Grateful Dead did in October 1974 in the Winterland. This was supposed to be their retirement. This is what everyone thought. The reason I like this is that it's a sort of a best of and it shows the band playing some really tight stuff and unlike full shows where you may have some great songs and some very good songs and some others not too good. Pretty much everything here is just smoking. It's really good. Eyes of the World in this is one of the best recorded versions. I'll link to an article on my website where I wrote about this a few years ago. It's five CDs. It's an overview of everything the Grateful Dead did through 1974, and you can't go wrong with this set. What's your next track, Doug? Are you going to pick some Grateful Dead this week? Oh, well, duh. Um, as I implied during the show, I'm not exactly a big Grateful Dead fan, but I do have several of their albums. And the one I'm choosing is Terrapin Station. This album came out the summer before my freshman year in college in 1977, and seemingly every other person at my school was a deadhead, so there was pretty much no avoiding hearing this record everywhere that fall. And so it's kind of stuck with me. Now, I know it's a polarizing album for deadheads. Some people think it's a masterpiece and others think it's another wasted studio effort. Uh, I'm closer to the former opinion, although I wouldn't really know a Grateful Dead masterpiece if it woke up next to me. But like a lot of my next track picks, this record sounds really good, you know, production-wise. Jerry's guitar playing is very sparkly. And of course, there are some good songs like Estimated Prophet and Samson and Delilah, as well as the Terrapin Station Suite or Medley or whatever it's called that takes up all of side two. Forgive me if I only appreciate it for the nostalgia it evokes of my college years and the many friends I made while listening to it. The Grateful Dead's Terrapin Station is my next track. This has been The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. You can find show notes and links to some of the things we talked about in this and other episodes at thenexttrack.com. There's also a contact form there you can use to send us comments. If you like the show, we hope you'll subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And please think about giving us a review or rating. We'd appreciate that. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time. <laughs>